Let us pray. God, as we hear these stories, familiar and ancient, startle us with your truth and open us to your love. Help us to be struck by the mystery and the beauty of the stories that meet us in your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Reading the newspaper in these early days of 2017, you get the sense that we are living in a time of not knowing quite who to trust. Everyone wants to know what kind of president Donald Trump will turn out to be. Questions abound about whether or not he trusts the intelligence community and whether they should be trusted and whether or not we can trust Russia. It's worth noting that these concerns about the future of government are not at all new or unique to this year. When FDR became president, he and Herbert Hoover rode to the inauguration in an open-aired car, and the press reported to the entire country that they neither spoke to one another nor even looked at one another the entire ride. When Nixon was elected, he refused to view a single intelligence briefing briefing prior to taking office. As president-elect, he sent them back to Washington unopened. And I'm not interested in talking about presidents this morning. They're simply an illustration of the idea that questions of trust affect all of us. From fake news to WikiLeaks to the mainstream media's struggle to regain their dominance, regular people want to know what news to trust. Issues of trust impact all kinds of personal concerns in our lives. Will my identity be stolen? Where is it safe to keep or to invest my money? We even have issues about trust within our families. Will my parents be safe in the assisted living arrangement we've chosen? Are my children safe at daycare? Is that really the first cookie you've had today? Life is full of questions about who we can trust, and these days trust just happens to be in the news a lot. And ministers notice that kind of thing. I was having lunch this week with a minister friend of mine. I walked in, he was reading the paper. He put it down and looked up at me and said, Man, it's a great time to be in ministry, isn't it, Adam? Not knowing quite what he was driving at, I asked, and he said, Well, it's always been our job to teach people to trust God, and right now they don't trust anybody else. (laughs) He was overstating the case a bit, but the point remains, one of the most pervasive struggles in human life and faith is determining where to place your trust. And it is at the core of of our life of faith, we ask that question as well. 
The issue of misplaced trust is at the core of the very familiar story about the wise men. The issue arises around a word that comes up at two points in the story, a word that may seem a little bit ancient to you and to me, but that is deeply relevant because it is all about trust. And the word is homage. The wise men come to visit Jesus and they pay him homage. On their way, Herod asks the wise men to bring him word of where he can find the one born the king of the Jews so that he may pay him homage. Homage is worship. It is placing one's hope, one's faith, one's trust in another. And the story of the wise men tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, is worthy of our homage, and it warns us of the danger of paying homage to anything else, anything not worth your trust. The first part of the story is about homage that is horribly misplaced. It's the part of the story about Herod. The wise men, you will remember, stop in Jerusalem on their way to find the Christ child, and they pay a visit to King Herod. And they ask him, where is the child who has been born the king of the Jews? For we have observed his star at its rising, and we have come to pay him homage. Herod who believes himself to be king of the Jews, is frightened by this announcement of a rival king, and he immediately goes on the defensive. He gathers together his advisors, and they come up with a plan. They're going to play it cool, and Herod comes back into the room, and making a statement we all know to be dishonest, he says to the Magi, Go and Seek diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also pay him homage. We know right away that Herod is not sincere. We are told as much a few verses later, when the wise men ignore his instructions and return home by another road. Tom Traeger from Yale Divinity School points out the great irony of this story is that Herod unknowingly states what in truth he needs to do. He unknowingly states what in truth he needs to do. Herod was a ruthless king, known far and wide for his reign of violence and fear. Herod paid homage to no one except for himself and the Roman authorities who could add to his power. Herod is the one who needs more than anyone to bow down and pay homage to Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And the clever thing about the way this story is written is that Herod, the one who most needs to pay homage to Jesus, he comes right out and says it. Where is the child? so that I may go and pay him homage. He just doesn't realize what he is saying. 
Herod has placed so much trust in his own reign of violence and brutality that he cannot see that the loving and compassionate Jesus is deserving of his homage. It is a horrible misplacement of trust. The other use of the word homage in this story is more subtle, but it's also more closely related to us, assuming that most of you are a little less brutal than Herod. The second use of the word is by the wise men themselves. They also intend to pay homage to Jesus. And in their case, they mean it. And yet many of us don't pay much attention at all to that very key part of this story. This is one of the most well-known and recognizable stories in the whole Bible. We know all about the wise men. We love imagining their long journey from a faraway land, the beautiful flowing robes of these ancient astrologers, the gifts they bring, stored away in magnificent jeweled chests. Christians throughout history have invented details about this story that are found nowhere in the Bible. We claim that there were three wise men, though the story never says anything about that. It only says that there are three gifts. And we imagine the meaning of those gifts. Tradition tells us they have special meanings, gold for royalty, frankincense for divinity, myrrh, an embalming device meant to reference the death Jesus will die. The wise men are given names by tradition that are not in the Bible. Caspar, Melchior, and Balthasar. And a few decades ago, an author even discovered an old text in the Vatican Library, hundreds of years old, called The Revelation of the Magi. It is the entire story of the birth of Jesus retold exclusively from the perspective of the wise men. We have been inventing all kinds of things about this story ever since it was written. And there's no problem with that. There's no problem in loving this story of the wise men and wondering about all of the details that we are not told. The only danger is that in creating all of this myth about the wise men, we risk missing the point of the story. We create so much magnificence around them that we forget they were there to worship someone else. The real point of this story seems to be that these amazing, wonderful wise men, these visionaries who had been looking for something truly great, they find it. And they bow down and worship him. As the story says, they pay him homage. This is where the story comes back around to us and our questions about who and what we can trust. Human beings spend an incredible amount of time spinning out stories and worries about what we can trust, whether it is the people in Washington or the website where you just entered your credit card number or the place where you just dropped off your children. 
These are all, to be sure, legitimate concerns. We should take them seriously because we can have influence in these spheres up to a certain point. But we will never have total control of them. Much of what happens in our country or to our money or even in our family is ultimately out of our reach. And in a way similar to how we pay a bit too much attention to the wise men themselves, their names, their clothing, their gifts, and miss the fact that they are paying homage to someone else. Like that, we spend an incredible amount of time placing our trust in worldly things that we cannot control. We pay homage to those things rather than paying homage to God. The thing that we should learn from the wise men is that they are on a journey for something that really can be trusted. And they find it. They who are wealthy and educated and powerful, who would have had as much reason as anyone to believe in controlling their own lives and making their own luck, they've struck out following a star because they seek something that might actually be deserving of their trust. And they find it. What they seek is not something fleeting and of this world. It is an eternal promise that will never let them down. The whole idea of placing our trust in God was captured nicely in a story one of you sent to me just around the turn of the new year. New Year's always exhibit some uncertainty and wonderment about what is to come. This year is actually rather routine when you compare it to some other places and times. One would be England in January of 1939. That year, as World War II threatened all of Europe, King George VI gave a Christmas radio broadcast And in that broadcast, he read the following poem by Minnie Louise Haskins. It's entitled, The Gate of the Year. And it reads like this. And I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light, that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go out into the darkness, Put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. So I went forth and finding the hand of God, trod gladly into the night. And God led me toward the hills and the breaking of the day in the lone east. 